Let's take our, our second meditation now and just lead into it with another verse from this uh, poem of St. John of the Cross. As I said, it's his feast day today. And then we'll pick up our friendship with Meister Eckhart after this. In the happy night, in secret, when none saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart. This light guided me, more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well I knew who, was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. Recently, I was visiting a young family who had just had an overnight delivery of a four-day-old baby. No, they had a, just had a baby four days before. And it was uh, wonderful to see how totally absorbed they were. All the, what is it called, oxycetin, this uh, hormone of oxycetin. What is it called? Oh, I'm sorry, oxytocin. Oxytocin that was uh, being poured out in gallons, uh, bonding this, uh, this holy family together. And they had waited the nine months or so. Nothing can speed up that process, I think. And uh, then the mother told me that uh, she had been 36 hours in labor and eventually had to have a C-section, but had no pain, she said difficult to believe that she had no pain, she just... And it made me think of this whole notion of waiting, which of course at the season of Advent, the word Advent means coming towards us, the one who is coming towards us. What this whole season of Advent teaches us about the, the spiritual process, the spiritual birth, I was talking about Meister Eckhart's uh, four great sermons on the divine birth and the birth within the human soul of the Word, the Word of God, self-expression of God, God's way of making God's self known out of God's unknowability, God's infinite distance, and this word bridges that infinite distance by being understandable, recognizable, comprehensible. And the word of God, God's self-expression, which is in one sense the whole universe, has also been behind all of the great revelations, all of the great awakenings, enlightenments, discoveries, the axial age, where, for example, the, the great religious wisdom traditions as we know them today took shape when this period in history, about 500 years before the birth of Christ, when uh, human beings in many cultures, almost well, relatively simultaneously, seem to go through a great awakening of interiority, of a transformation of the idea of sacrifice from being 
an outward act that influenced some unknown powers to being seen as the sacrifice of attention. And it's at the heart of these great wisdom traditions that took shape at that time that we find meditation, the common ground of humanity, common consciousness, which we seem to be able to awaken together and we meditate together across our cultures and belief systems and so on. And also it's at this, in this axial age where there was, for the first time, an articulation of the sense of a higher purpose in human life. That we are here to be divinized, or we are here to be enlightened, we are here to be liberated, we are here to become wise. So there's a sense that the cycles of nature in, in which humanity is caught up as part of our natural belonging to the world and its, its mysteries. But apart from this, there is also a linear direction cutting through these cycles of nature uh, and an understanding that time is an arrow going in one direction. We don't go backwards in time, we go forwards and there is a purposefulness to this, uh, to this journey. The goal, there is a goal, there is a meaning, and there is a sense of an ultimate fulfillment and purpose. So all of this uh, took shape in what we now, what historians call the axial age. And in the Christian understanding, the word of God, uh, brings humanity by touching uh, the human mind and the human experience directly through some form of revelation, of beauty, of goodness, of truth, of discovery, of the raising of consciousness. Um, in each of these great wisdom traditions, there is a, uh, the, the word of God is present, the word of God as St. John says, that was with God in the beginning and, and, is, and was God and is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in the Christian uh, insight, this Word of God at a certain point, a singular point in history, in a an amazingly particular way uh, is incarnated. It's as if this this process of revelation needs is moving towards the consummation uh, of the unification of what is created out of the being of God and with God Himself. So God becomes human, and why? Why should this happen? And again. The Christian insight is that God became human, poured himself in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt embodied, as the letter to the Colossians says, so that the human being can become God. And this is a, this is a mantra of the early uh, few centuries of Christianity as Christian thinkers, the fathers of the church as we call them, uh, reflected upon two things coming together, their own experience of deep prayer and the scriptures and the wisdom around them. And in this uh, combination of experience and scripture, uh, the, the Christian, uh, Christian thought emerged. And this is articulated in a key, simple aphorism of, of Christian theology. God became human so that human beings can become God. And theosis, becoming God, the divinization of the human, is the meaning of this short space of time that we are here, this 
is the Christian description of that of the purpose of life that we should become sharers in the divine nature as St. Peter says so this birth of Jesus as the incarnation of the word in a in a, in, in a human manifestation but this uh, is the, is the critical focal point of the Christian view of reality. And it gives meaning to the whole of history, the whole of creation, the whole of evolution. But Meister Eckhart says this, what use is this to me that the birth of uh, the, 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 of the word in Jesus should have happened. What does it matter to me that this should be always happening? Because it is, in a sense, an eternal event in the, in, at the heart of the Godhead. The word is continuously being spoken. As St. John of the Cross says, God has only spoken one word, and he repeats it continuously. So Meister Eckhart said, well, what's, what's the use of all of this if it does not happen to me? What does it avail me that the birth is always happening if it does not happen to me now? And as I was saying, for us to allow this to happen, for us to participate in the birth of the word within the soul, within our human being, we must be totally, as he would, as the word is translated, passive in the sense of actively receptive. Empty, with an empty mind, empty of all sense, all sense experience, all outwardness, all of the ways we project reality outwards, imaginatively or in illusion or in outwardly in images uh, in order for us to fully know and participate in this birth of the word in ourselves we have to enter into that poverty as I was saying earlier John Cassian the teacher of St. Benedict and, and the source of this way of meditation for both Eastern and Western Christians. Cassian says that this is why we take these times of spiritual work where we renounce all the riches of thought and imagination. And by the continuous repetition of this sacred verse, enter into poverty of spirit. This is the, the reason, this is the practical reason for what we are doing not just to relax and de-stress, but to awaken to this birth that is taking place in us continually. And this way, because it is a journey, a practice, extended over time, as we build this discipline of silence and stillness into our daily life, maybe from the age of nine, maybe from the age of 59. This is a way that is, in, in one sense, a dark way. What happens produces signs and fruits and observable, perceptible results. Otherwise, it would be meaningless. On the other hand, it is hidden. And this is the paradox. It is a way of light, of enlightenment, but at the same time, a way of darkness. It is as if God re reveals himself, but at the same time hides himself in what is revealed. What is necessary for this, Meister Eckhart says, are three elements. First is some 
kind of physical seclusion. I don't think he means by this that we have to go into a cave in the Himalayas or into a hermitage uh, for 20 years. But I think it means that just as we decide and try to set aside two periods of meditation a day, we go into seclusion. That is our seclusion, that is our hermitage, that is our cave. And there are always good reasons for not going into it or for avoiding it or postponing it. But the cave remains there once we have tasted the experience, once we've started the, the, the journey, started the practice. Uh, we don't forget it. We can't forget that dimension of ourselves, the dimension of, of consciousness, of perception that has awakened in us, however, in to, however small a way it has awakened in us. And we can't forget that once we have had the taste of it. How we respond to it, whether we run away from it, is another matter. But somebody was telling me the other day that, actually, two stories, uh, both of them at the same, same uh, point, actually. One was somebody, um, well, actually, somebody was saying that they, they had, uh, they were looking up uh, on the internet and they came across the, the, the website. Uh, mention of, of Bombo. And when they, they read it, they thought, I, I have to go there. And uh, it took them more than a year to get there. And I said, why, why did you wait for a year? And they said, because somehow or other, I, I knew that it was going to have a big impact on me. And it did a very big impact, um, but I didn't, I was scared, I wanted to postpone it, I, I, I knew it was real, it was something, an attraction, a recognition, but I just didn't feel ready for it, or didn't want it. And a similar story, somebody told me that they had been given a, a book, one of John Main's books um, by a friend. They just looked at it and they put it on their bedside table. And it remained on their bedside table also, I think, for a year. I hope they dusted it, but anyway. And, uh, and they said, finally, they read it. I said, why did it take you so long to read it? And they said, well, for the same reason. I just had this feeling that it was going to be very significant and make a big impact in the way I saw my faith and saw myself and saw my relationship with God and understood the meaning of God. And they said, that was exactly what happened when I started to read it and, and I felt Father John was not speaking about God or any of the things he was talking about as if these were ideas, but they were, he was speaking about something that he knew and knew deeply, personally, and clearly, and didn't even have to describe in great detail because it was so self-evident. And uh, anyway, so they also started to meditate. So there's a, a turning point, of course, as we move from preparation to practice. As I was saying earlier, we can think about something, we can read about it, we can have intuitions about it, we can do a PhD on it and have endless debates or dialogues about it. But that preparation has to give way at some point to an actual practice. Now, once you've started the practice, you may 
go with it like a greyhound and not look back, or you may stop and start and start again, uh, like most of us do, for a period of time. Anyway, this is one of the first things that uh, Eckhart says we need in order to allow this birth its full, its full uh, realization is to take this space and time for, uh, we would say, for practice or for physical seclusion, even if it's just 20 minutes or half an hour, morning and evening. And the second element he says is necessary is to tame the mind. Because the first thing we discover when we start this practice is that the mind is uh, very untamed, very undisciplined. And that it is a, uh, a, a, a supermarket of, of options, special offers, uh, new models, and same old things, <laughs> endlessly re repackaged. So he says we must tame the mind so that we do not get sold into multiplicity. So we don't get sold into multiplicity. Or just scattered, I suppose is what he's saying. And I haven't been into a, a, haven't been back there for a few years, but I went into uh, what's it called? A big shopping mall in Shepherd's Bush. What's it called? Westfield. So I went into Westfield to get my phone fixed, and uh, they told me that in the Apple Store that it would take uh, three hours. So oh, I might as well get it done there and then, and rather than have to come back, I would spend three hours in Westfield. <laughs> well, it was, I don't know if it was well spent or not, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to repeat the experience. <laughs> it, it just, uh, it, I just find it, so stifling. I, at first, of course, you are swept up in the, the glamour of it, you know, and all of these products and all of the, everything, every, you know, everything carefully calibrated to attract your attention, to awaken desire, awaken attachment, and fill you with desire for things you didn't want two minutes before. And, so you walk around and you're just in this uh, vortex of, of desire. Well, I'm not, I mean, I've been in a shopping mall before, but it, it, it hit me very powerfully. And I think what hit me more, though, rather than just the, the brilliance and the cleverness and the psychological mastery of, of the marketing and of the packaging and the desiring and so on, all of that, was, was this suddenly, it seemed to me, totally absurd, frenetic activity of people, most of whom I suppose were not very well off, but, you know, with credit lines on their credit cards, um, running around and with this, as if they were in a race, really, against time to, uh, to acquire as much, and I wasn't, it wasn't that I was being superior or judgmental, I have my own uh, weaknesses too, but um, it was really farcical for a moment as I was sitting having a coffee somewhere uh, to see this, this frenetic activity of multiplicity, sold into multiplicity, and that's what that's what our minds uh, can be like when we start to meditate and from time to time. Uh, shopping malls, really, of, uh, of a frenetic and ultimately meaningless activity, uh, constant 
creation of anxiety and fears and desires uh, in an illusory uh, state, in, in, in an unreal uh, dimension. And the third element that Meister Eckhart says is the um, necessary for this realization of the birth of the word is to still the mind, to bring that noisy multiplicity of the mind to deepening levels of stillness and clarity. The clarity comes with the stillness. And to still the body too. He insists that the body has to be stilled as well, so that an integration, harmonization of, of the body-mind continuum uh, uh, takes place. And when the mind is firmly centered on God, then the senses become obedient to the mind, he says. So he's not puritanical, he's not saying that sensory desires are in themselves bad, but very often our desires, you know, if you're building up a huge debt on your credit card, there's something, something disobedient about that in your relationship to reality and so on. So our desires can become disobedient, out of harmony with the reality of the, of the clear mind of our common sense and of our reasonableness, our groundedness in reality. And so, as a result of this work of stilling of the mind and this silencing, stilling of the body, uh, from which comes an awareness of, the, of, the, of what is happening in the depth of our soul, this continuous birthing of the word, the giving birth in us to the Word of God, that that, um, that brings about a change in our shopping habits. <laughs> this brings about a change in the way we spend our time in our life activities, our habits, and so on, a radical transformation, which, again, in that Christian vision, is not less than a little glimpse into the divinization that is taking place. The ultimate process, the ultimate meaning of uh, all of our experience. So, Meister Eckhart says, when we abandon everything, or we might say these are the strong words that Jesus uses when he calls disciples to abandon all their possessions and to prefer nothing, no other particular relationship in your life to that central reality of your relationship to God. To prefer nothing to him, as he put it. When we abandon, when, when we abandon attachment, would be an easier way for us to express it. When we let go of what the mind and the senses attach themselves to, then we enter the inner ground of our being where God enters without image in absolute stillness. What's the characteristic of Meister Eckhart and other mystical writers is the sense that, in a way, this has to happen. There's an inevitability about it. And Meister Eckhart plays with this sometimes in his humorous way by saying, you know, God can't help but to enter into the soul when the soul is in this state. It just happens. Nothing, this is the nature of reality. Go out of yourself and let God be God in you. So the going out of yourself is this poverty, this letting go, this renouncing, this laying aside of thoughts, 
and with the thoughts laying aside attachments and illusions. Go out of yourself and so let God be God in you. God comes completely out of himself for love of you. So here's a, this is, this is a, a mysticism of love as we saw in John of the Cross. That this birth of the word is not some abstract, you know, impersonal, or just merely scientific uh, 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 event that could be understood in those, in those terms. It, it is a passion of love, or it is a, it is a complete work of love. And our meditation itself, as we as it becomes incorporated in our life, we see that it is a work of love. We, we come, we will come to love our meditation because we see that our meditation is a work of love. And what that means is, two, is, is reciprocal. It means that in that work of meditation, we are experiencing love coming towards us, the advent of love towards us. That's what real Advent is about, waiting for love to take this human form uh, in this uh, child in Bethlehem. So the, the work of meditation is about receiving this love coming towards us, but and at the same time, us returning to the best of our ability, our love towards this love. So God, so we come out of ourselves and let God be God, but God also comes out of himself. This is the great emptiness of the incarnation, the great self-emptying, the great kenosis, uh, the emptiness of God necessary before, before the incarnation can happen. So in Meister Eckhart's uh, mystical theology, mystical vision, letting go, detachment, what we're doing in meditation, laying aside our thoughts, and how that translates then into a new way of living, new values of living, new ways in which we spend our time and money and new, new places where we place our attention, new priorities in our life. These don't come ready-made. We have to adjust to them. We have to incorporate them. We have to accept them. We have to welcome, ultimately, these changes and so on. But as this detaching happens, at the same time, and in the same process, this birthing of something new takes place. So the, the detachment and the giving birth are not successive states, but two sides of the same coin. And how do we know, I think somebody raised this question earlier, how do we know that this birth is happening? How do we know when we're living, when we have to go into Westfield to get our phone fixed? Or when we have problems in life we have to deal with? Or when old patterns of mind or feelings uh, suddenly recur, which we may have thought we had mastered or left behind? How do we know that this birth is happening in this journey that we are making? Well, I think Meister Eckhart and other voices in the tradition would say, we know it is happening because we can see this same process, the same giving birth, happening in everything, all around us. So even when it, it, we may doubt uh, at times, uh, the validity of our own experience, uh, 
we can see it happening around us in others. And it's in this way, perhaps, that we see our the value of our meditation, of our own daily practice uh, for the world. Because when you see this happening in the world and in other people and in the people you meet, then your seeing it changes what they see or changes the consciousness of the group or the environment that you are part of. When you see something, it changes what you see. It affects the level of consciousness in the group that you are living and working in. And um, you could try this out over the few days of Christmas when if your families have all come together. Um, it's seeing this birth of the word, the self-giving of God, self-expression of God in all of the processes of life. And even in our troubled times, looking at the crisis, the multiple crisis that uh, we are passing through with the environmental emergency, with the breakdown in many places and in many different ways of what we thought of as our democratic processes, the fragility of those democratic institutions that guarantee a certain level of freedom, the perilous state of, of our economic model that we have been working with for the last 20 years or more, so. um, and the clear disturbance of the, of the, of the, of the mind of, of people, psychological health psycho and psychological well-being of, uh, of people, young and old, today under the influence of technology and speed and stress. So when we look at all of these different uh, multiple crises appearing, it's hard not to feel that you just want to turn on Netflix or go on a holiday or, you know, escape from it. What can we do about it? Well, one thing we can do is to look it in the eye, to look at it as patiently and as carefully and critically as we can, to be as well informed as we can, <coughs> separate the fake news from the real news, the lies from the few words of truth that are spoken. To be able to, to work at that, that's a responsibility. And um, that's one thing we can do because it changes the perception of the, of the whole, of, of the general consciousness when more and more contemplatively minded people do begin to see things differently. And it's not easy to look at those manifestations of, of crisis or of the direction in which it seems to be taking us without feeling a certain pessimism. Well, there is such a thing as a pessimism of the intellect. When you see something bad happening, you should look at it and, and not deny it and say, this is really serious. Denial is the easiest way of dealing with the environmental crisis as, we, as we've seen and all other sorts of problems. Um, so there is a pessimism of the will, which may be a part of our responsibility, but there is also an, 
sorry, a pessimism of the intellect, in which we do not deny what we see, but there is also an, an optimism of the will. That is also our responsibility. To be able to look at the bad news and to look deeply enough into it so that we can see a rebirth happening, a remaking of the world. At least that there is a, there is a possibility that that is happening. And I think the more deeply we look into it, the more convinced we may be that things may have to get worse before they get better. But there is a birthing taking place here. And out of the pain and the loss and the injustice and the chaos and the humiliation that is, that is happening through this crisis, there is the word of God is being made flesh in a new way. And that same birthing of God that takes place in us, we can become aware of at a deeply personal level, is happening uh, in humanity as, as a whole, as a species. So, how do we know this birth is happening? Why, we, why do we say Happy Christmas? Because under pressure, we can notice God in everything. Everywhere we possess God, uh, Meister Eckhart says. By possessing God, this is what he means. We have, we have a an irrefutable personal uh, recognition, perception, insight into the divine life, the divine love working in and for us. So everywhere we possess God, on the street, in any company in which we may find ourselves, certainly as much in, in, as in church or in your cave or your cell. And this is why uh, Eckhart goes on to say that we ask for nothing, we seek for nothing in prayer except God himself. Jesus said this, don't go babbling on like the pagans who think the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard because your heavenly Father knows your needs before you ask. Well, saying the mantra is a total acceptance of that teaching. We are putting that teaching into practice wholeheartedly and faithfully, simply in our meditation. And it's this uh, work, he speaks about that in Sermon 55, it's understanding that uh, in prayer we are seeking for nothing except God himself, neither knowledge nor understanding nor interiority, nor piety, nor any kind of spiritual experience. And in order to do this, he says something surprising. He says, all you need to do is to lead an ordinary Christian life. Just live a good life. You don't have to do anything more special than that, although I suppose that's special enough. But in other words, we have to find the mysterious, the mysteriousness of reality in the ordinary, rather than constructing some glamorous idea of God or some glamorous product 
as which will justify our meditation practice. Rather than looking for something extraordinary, we do the extraordinary thing by finding reality in its fullness in the most ordinary. That's what's extraordinary about it. That's what's extraordinary in the paradox uh, of the story of the birth of Jesus. After all, here is the word of God, wisdom, uh, incarnated in a little little town in a, in a manger in, in, in Bethlehem and uh, although the skies are filled with angels they're only seen by the shepherds who are the marginal people it's not everybody who sees it and um, and yet just as I noticed with that young couple that young family I was with this extraordinary, intense concentration on the birth, or the, the thing that has just been born, or is being born. So in, those, in that iconographic image of, of the Holy Family, uh, you see Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and whoever else is there, just focusing with intense absorption, oxytocin, on this little baby. And some years ago, the Dalai Lama, when we were in India, presented us with a, a tanka, one of these Tibetan paintings. And uh, as I unrolled it, I was expecting to see some Buddhist um, picture. And I couldn't quite believe my eyes or work out what it was at first and then I realized it was a, a Tibetan um, representation of the birth of Jesus. So with all of these Tibetan looking characters and little Tibetan angels or bodhisattvas flying around in the sky and a yak instead of an oxen <laughs> and uh, but in the same way, everything focused on this little tiny little squib of life in the middle of the, of the painting. So that's where our focus has to be, on this birth, and this embodiment that is taking place in us. Not, if it happened only outside of us, it would just be an interesting story or a myth. But if it's happening inside us, within us, and part of us, then it's worth thinking about. And it's worth giving our full, undivided attention to. And it's this, then, that moves us from having a kind of a false spirituality, where we try to achieve some high level of holiness, or enlightenment, or realization, or spiritual wisdom uh, as if it was some kind of hobby or some kind of specialization that we were engaging with. So a, a contemplative life that was really just a little bit too angelic to be real, to be human. But that's not what we are called to. That's not what the birth of Jesus in us means. What we realize then, on the other hand, is that the spirituality we should be living day by day is a combination, a marriage of um, contemplation and action. That this birth takes place in this life today, in every encounter, in every moment, we should be awakened to that and give our attention to that and allow its fruit to spread and to share it. And for that, we need uh, to take times of stillness and silence. We need to build in a discipline of contemplative 
contemplative prayer and meditation into daily life. But it's only so that the whole of our life can be seen and realized as this place of birth where the, the word becomes flesh. It doesn't become, it doesn't become another word or another idea or another concept or another philosophy but it becomes flesh and it becomes flesh in us and in all the relationships that make up our, our life. So, Happy Christmas <laughs> and um, before we end with a few minutes of, of meditation, uh, before we, we close, would anyone like to to raise any questions or share any Christmas thoughts. Uh, how important is it to read some of this literature and uh, how to extract the message from them? Well, I think it's important, important or it's very helpful in order to, it's more important to meditate and to develop our own personal uh, practice. But in order to do that, I think it's very helpful not to see our own meditation in too in individualistic a way. That's why it's very helpful to meditate with other people, because it brings you down to earth, and you don't, you don't uh, see it just as a, <coughs> as, you know, a, 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 solo, a, a solo journey. Um, but it also to, to strengthen and enrich your understanding of that practice to whatever degree is right for you. Um, I think it is important, very helpful to, to read as long as one sees it as a, as a preparation rather than the practice itself. And uh, I think according to your taste and what you find helpful, I don't think you have to you know, force yourself to read spiritual writing or mystical literature that you, you know, really can't get your head around or it makes no sense. It probably is important to uh, approach it, um, approach it uh, gently. Uh, you can do that. We have a very good online course uh, on the School of Meditation website called Introduction to Chris uh, the Roots of Christian Mysticism. Uh, and um, you could sort of work your way through that to begin with and see which of the various teachers who are, you'll be introduced to through that course, uh, which you can take at your own pace, which of them uh, seem to speak to you in a, in a particularly interesting way. And then follow that up. So I would, I would say follow your interest. And, you know, it's a bit like being at a, a party and you don't know anybody there, so you go towards somebody who you like the look of. <laughs> and uh, and uh, get to know them. So in the same way, I think, it's, it's a vast subject, mystical literature, but uh, have a little contact or conversation with some of the key, the key figures that you'll meet in a general survey or introduction, such as that course, and, uh, and then see which ones uh, seem to, you seem to get on with. And I think that, would, that will awaken a, a, a taste and a sense of direction that you can trust. Yeah, so how, how, do you, how can you share with others that you find yourself thrown with at Christmas or in, in, in life, uh, share something of this journey that you're making yourself? Yeah. I, I think uh, the real medium of communication for this, uh, for, for this knowledge or understanding is, is attention. So it's paying attention, giving your attention to 
others is what will bring you to a compassionate insight. And that doesn't always happen, you know, because you are some wise and holy person looking down uh, on all suffering humanity because you're part of it too. And it often means that that moment of attention and compassion and insight comes about because something got disturbed in you. You find yourself with a group of people in network of relationships and your own issues, your own attachments, your own vulnerabilities can get hooked and cause you to make mistakes or, or, or to suffer. And what, you, what your meditation will give you is an awareness of that. And an awareness that allows you to be conscious of it without being overwhelmed by it. So by working, first of all, on that place where your own weakness or your own mm, vulnerability is, is exposed, it's from there that you, you will be able, most likely, to be of help to others at, at the most effective and detached level. And it's often towards people that you, you know, you would may, maybe who annoy you or upset you or have hurt you. As, 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 as some traditions say, your enemies are your best spiritual friends. They will teach you more about yourself than you know, other, others might. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Pay attention to them, in other words. So I think it may, it may be that sometimes it also it's just simply that, that, that isn't the dynamic, but it, it, it is often the dynamic for, for real insight and, and of real service to others when you're coming out of your own humanity. Uh, but sometimes it's, you know, you are, as St. Benedict says, the human nature is naturally drawn towards people in need and people who are vulnerable, like the young or the old. And you can't help but feel an instinctive care and compassion and sensitivity to them. So I think um, whether it comes from that, for, for either, uh, from either of those sources, the attention that you give to others will naturally bring you the sensitivity uh, to make you aware of how you might help, even if it's only just by being with them, rather than giving, giving them the solution. I mean, I think if you keep on saying to somebody, you know, you should meditate, you should meditate, you should meditate, you should meditate, it's the best way of putting them off, you know. But with compassion, and that sort of natural care comes common sense and wisdom so that you become aware of how you might make them aware of a, a new path they could take, that they just become aware of it and then they begin to work on that new awareness that it, it may be, you know, then they might say, oh, so you meditate and say, yeah, I'm a very bad meditator, but, you know, I do meditate, it's very important to me. You know, that, in other words, you're coming to them not as some great guru, but you're coming to them as, a, as somebody who's actually found something, a pearl of great price, but is still learning how to, how to use it. So I think it's something that grows um, out of that combination of your own vulnerability and, um, and natural compassion for others. So is, uh, I was speaking about our entering into emptiness or nothingness, no-thingness, and is the God we meet, how did you put it? Is the God we meet also asking nothing of us? 
sense, asking everything else. Well, <laughs> or in the sense of asking everything, yes, the latter. I, I think it's... Uh, in, the, in the years that I was with uh, John Main and learning from John Main and seeing how he helped me and how he helped other people, I, I never ever saw him tell anybody what to do. But uh, if you openly discussed or shared something with him, you were very much more clear about yourself, about the forces at work in yourself, and about what you should do, or how you should find what you should do. So uh, he was a dangerous person in that sense, because he, he brought you to self-awakening, uh, but never, never interfered with your own freedom. And I think uh, that's what spiritual guidance should be. And love should be, you know, that there is no uh, control or attachment, even for the good of, of the other person. So, is that what God is like to us? Uh, yes, I, I think so. And that's why God, God's uh, embodiment of the Word of God in, fully in a human being, the Christian vision knows it. Uh, you know, is in this very human story of, of the nativity and then of the, of, of the life of Jesus, which was, not a, which was a very, um, you know, uh, a, a, a life that, uh, you know, involved a lot of struggle, a lot of, and eventually ended, uh, did not end as a success story. So that's very significant that the full embodiment of God in a human being should be in a human being like Jesus, in whom we can, we can meet and touch an absolute truth and authenticity and love and wisdom, but at the same time is totally vulnerable. So I, th I think if that, and if we believe that the incarnation in Jesus is the, the is the full translation without anything being lost in the translation, which it usually is, but nothing lost in the translation of the divine into the human, then to see me is to see the Father, as Jesus said. There's, a, there's clearly a, it's an analogy, so you have to interpret it. But to see truly what he is like is to see the nature of God coming towards us, intervening, yes, not staying outside, so intervening into our human neediness out of compassion and yet not interfering not telling us what to do showing us what to do but not telling us what to do not twisting our arm or making us feel guilty or using blackmail or threatening us with hell or anything else all of that's our invention and we invented all of that nonsense to keep God away from us He's, he's too much otherwise. So if we take away all of that projection that we put onto Jesus and Christianity and God and all of these things, what is left is this simple encounter and uh, of love with love, ultimately. Our yearning for love, which is the heart of the human being, and love coming towards us. This is what um, Rumi says. This was in the first of the, the Advent reflections that we put out. Is it, um, 
As Rumi says, lovers don't just finally meet somewhere. The lovers don't just finally meet somewhere. They are in each other all along. And that's really, that's the, the message that's being worked out in, uh, well, in, in, in Advent and in the liturgical seasons and in uh, the Christmas story, that it's not only that we meet God in Jesus, but, in, but this birth of the Word has been happening all along and is continuous. This light guided me more surely than the light of noonday to the place where he, well I knew who, was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. Oh, night that guided me, oh, night more lovely than the dawn, oh, night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved.